0: The conversation within uh, legal circles, both in terms of practitioners and academics, uh, when it comes to um, generative AI, specifically, you know, large language models, ChatGPT 3 and 4, uh, the conversation is pretty
1: intense.
2: Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at TechTarget in Massachusetts.
1: And I edit as their stories.
2: We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and chat GPT.
1: And don't forget about Google Bard.
2: Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered, right, Sean?
1: Yep, we've got it covered.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inarva episode of the Targeting AI Podcast. On today's episode, we're speaking with Michael Bennett, a lawyer and the Director of Education Curriculum and Business Lead for Responsible AI at the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern University. Before coming to Northeastern, Michael was an Associate Research Professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Center for Science and Imagination at Arizona State University. Other than serving as an associate professor, he has worked as an executive committee member of the Young People's Project and served as a member of the American Bar Association Committee on Bioethics and the Law. He's currently a board member of Leonardo, the International Society for the Heart, Science, and Technology. Welcome to the podcast, Michael, and thanks for being out in Argo, our guest.
1: Thank you so much, Esther. It's great to be joining you today. Um, so, Michael, you're business lead for responsible AI at the Institute for Experiential AI at Northeastern. So what does that job entail and and, and mean for you personally? And um, how does it intersect with uh, academic academics and curriculum? And also, how does the Institute define responsible AI?
0: It's a fascinating job, Sean. So uh, effectively in this role uh, within the Institute I, am, I do several things. So uh, in part, I bring to bear my, my understanding of policy, law, and what it takes to uh, to build or engineer new regulations that apply to, to technology to help uh, really clients, um, be they government uh, entities or corporations, think about how best to regulate various types of artificial intelligence and implementations of artificial intelligence, it's uh, it's pretty fascinating uh, in the sense that uh, there are many many laws that theoretically could be applied to to new technological applications of various types, but because of all of the concern around AI and right now especially generative AI, and I'd say even further um, uh, applications like I like ChatGPT, uh, four, uh, there's an incredible sense of uh, urgency around the need for for new regulation. So spending a lot of time talking to uh, elected officials and their legislative aides about how to craft new laws, spending a lot of time talking to companies and um, groups that represent entire uh, sectors or industries uh, to help them think about how to comply with laws that already exist or end laws that are likely to come into effect within the next year or so. And then, uh, and then also helping uh, learners of various types uh, come to grips with what it means to be living through this period in which the technological innovation is racing at pace and regulation is also building up speed. Uh, that last bit kind of goes to that part of your question that asks about uh, the connections between uh, the, the kind of service portion of my duty and the educational parts of my duties inside of the institute. In that, um, all of that work that goes into helping those clients think through how best to respond to AI and to AI regulation, that's also extremely useful in uh, building courses. Right? It's the it's the list for building building courses. Um, and by course, when I say courses, I mean in a very broad sense. So certainly, traditional courses, the the types of things one would expect to find within a university system like Northeastern. So uh, building a global AI regulation course for uh, law students right now that will very likely come online before this year's out. Uh, Building uh, another course that is more for practitioners, uh, lawyers and paralegals that focuses on uh, the state of AI regulation domestically now. and by that I mean both at the municipal level and the state level, and soon to be at the at uh, the federal level. And then a course that uh, that will be uh, available within a couple of months that will be uh, strictly online. That is more of an introduction to uh, to artificial intelligence for non-experts. So imagine you know very thoughtful, intelligent folks who are simply not computational scientists uh, and haven't taught themselves how to code. Haven't had a whole lot of experience with AI, but like all of us, wake up every day bombarded by AI stories, many of them uh, ringing uh, alarm bells, and now I have to imagine wondering, those folks are wondering, first, what is this? Uh, Two, what does it have to do uh, with me and my life, my family's life, and our well-being? And three, um, how realistic are all of these claims? It sounds like we woke up in a science fiction movie. And so that, that last course, which right now it has a working title of demystify, Demystifying AI, is focused on answering those kind of general questions. And so that's, um, that's how the first set of activities connects to, uh, to education and the creation of new courses. And then lastly, you, know, you asked about responsible uh, AI, responsible artificial intelligence, and what, what we mean by that. Um, the alarm bells that I mentioned uh, they're being rung in large part because uh, folks who are close to the space, close to the action, the development of AI and investment in AI, uh, the dissemination of it, implementation of it in various types of organizations, they, um, they are uh, on the same page, even if they're, they're coming from different um, perspectives, say political perspectives or social positions, many of them are on the same page. Uh, and believing that uh, AI is sufficiently powerful and sufficiently black boxed that uh, that it's causing concern. Uh, Even some of the the most adept experts in the space are struggling to explain how something like ChatGPT does what it does. Uh, We, at the same time, we're seeing um, various types of AI uh, approaches uh, folded into you know, very sensitive processes in society, uh, whether one gets a mortgage or not, uh, whether one is granted bail or not. And so if the, if the technology is so complicated and so nuanced that even experts can't understand it, but at the same time it's being used to, to help decision makers determine the fates of uh, millions of people at this point, many of them uh, coming from marginalized communities, you can see uh, how uh, troubling right. uh, the, uh, this situation is for, for many people. And so responsible artificial intelligence uh, ultimately is uh, intended to be a kind of uh, solution for those, uh, those types of concerns, or at least uh, part of a solution set for those types of concerns. Oftentimes, we use the, the phrase responsible artificial intelligence uh, inside of the Institute. We, uh, we mean that, uh, you know, we, we aim for transparency. We want to reduce the, the opaqueness of the, the processes that, uh, that fall under the moniker AI. We, um, we also want to help clients uh, find a way towards greater fairness in the outcomes, right, of AI applications. We are, and I think many of us inside of the Institute would say this, this last bit is maybe our central concern responsible artificial intelligence. We, we're interested in AI human teaming. We don't endorse uh, AI's driving uh, all decision-making uh, on their own. We want, as we say sometimes uh, in a shorthand fashion, a human to always be in the loop so that a person who uh, is on the business end of an AI process and get some kind of outcome or decision, uh, that person should always have recourse to a human uh, that can provide them with an explanation. And if the case is serious enough, the situation is serious enough, uh, another opportunity to be assessed.
2: I also like was thinking about you were talking about speaking to uh, I guess lawmakers a little bit, and I wonder just as a follow up, is like how often do they take your advice, right? How often do they try to implement some of the things that you're seeing um, and then advising them? Especially as it comes to responsible AI.
0: So it's uh, it's early days, and the uh, the legal processes, the uh, legislative uh, sausage making, as some of my friends like to put it, uh, process. Um, it takes a lot of time, and so I wouldn't want to uh, to judge them on their embrace of the suggestions just yet, but. Their response to the suggestions, the recommendations, the best practices that we're putting on the table for them, it's been quite positive. They, uh, the legislators, and more often their legislative aides in particular, uh, appear to a person to be uh, very open, right? They are curious, Uh, they're concerned on behalf of their constituencies, and they're also uh, oftentimes kind of pressed for, for time. Right. um they may need to respond to uh, to citizen groups or ngos that are uh, banging on their door on a regular basis uh, relatively quickly but of course oftentimes the uh, the lawmakers and their aides are, are not um, they're not technically trained and so in addition to uh, coming to grips with the recommendations that uh, that we put in front of them they also have to embrace the space enough to kind of understand the fundamentals of the the technologies. Uh, And that's, that's a big lift, right? It's not, I'm not asking them to get PhDs in the space, but that, uh, that mystification uh, course that I was talking about, that's intended to to kind of speed that process up a bit because it's very difficult to regulate something that uh, again, sounds like it it fell out of a Samuel Delaney uh, short story or you know, a Ursula Le Guin uh, novel. Uh, these things sound, uh, because science fiction has made so much use of them, they sound like they come out of science fiction. But in fact, they much more often come out of mathematics departments and
1: computational sciences programs. Mike, I appreciate the reference to the great science fiction author, uh, <laughs> Samuel <laughs> Delaney, having grown up reading science fiction myself. But, um... <laughs> So when you're talking about uh, lawmakers and legislators, are you talking to the mass delegation or all different delegations or aides for, uh, you know, Congress people uh, in Washington or who, which, which,
0: so, uh, people. Yeah. So the, the audience for that, uh, that type of service that we're providing is, is all of the above and more. So, um, all of the elected officials, uh, in the United States, uh, you know, we'd love to be uh, speaking to all of them uh, right now um, uh, state officials in the commonwealth uh, state officials in Maine, elected officials in uh, several municipalities in the region uh, right in the northeast i'll so we'll say just kind of generally and then preliminary discussions as well with elected officials on on the west coast uh, you know what what we're finding at the uh, at the federal level at the national level domestically is that you know ai may be hitting us at exactly the wrong time in terms of the uh, the composition of the uh, the elected officials there and i'm not even talking about you know where they where they sit in the political spectrum i'm just talking about their backgrounds uh there's they're just not that many folks that are elected to Congress right now, to the U.S. Congress right now, that have technical backgrounds or science backgrounds, much less computational sciences backgrounds. You can count them on a single hand. That's a huge ones, issue, yeah. Right. And so uh, it's uh, there's a need for it and a willingness to em- embrace it. And we are charging ahead in our efforts to, uh, to reach as many of them as we can.
2: Yeah, that's actually kind of interesting, especially as you see, like um, in the past few weeks, where you have like I guess OpenAI CEO going to Congress and they're trying to understand it, and then the Biden administration trying to understand it. But there is a um, I guess a law that New York just New York City just came out, the Automated Employment Decision Tool Law. Uh, I went into effect in July. Can you just describe the law and what exactly is the city action of its employers?
0: This law. Uh, and, and for those who want to, uh, to dig it up, it's, it's referred to as Local Law 144. That's its, um, its te- technical designation. And it's, uh, it's been designed to address some of the concerns that we were alluding to a few moments ago, uh, the, uh, the kind of closed off opaqueness of AI processes uh, that are Kind of exacerbating concerns when they're applied to, to sensitive areas like, like health, or finance, or uh, uh, say civil liberties, um, human rights, etc. Uh, so, local local law one four four is uh, it's been designed to to curb some of the potential downsides when AI is used in employment contexts, and specifically. Uh, when AI is used to sit through job applications and to assess uh, existing employee performance, uh, so instead of uh, to be concrete about that, instead of having you know an HR official uh, look over timesheets, look over you know direct report uh, assessments, uh, maybe do a review of external clients that have engaged with a particular employee, um, using an AI instead of a human to do those types of things and then to uh, have that AI kind of generate a report or generate a grade or some kind of uh, numerical coefficient that then kind of guides uh, the the process and determining how well that employee has performed over a certain period of time. And if they're applying for a job, uh, whether they should go on to the next round or go into, go into the dustbin, their application should go into the dustbin. And so the, the law uh, has those types of issues as it's, uh, just calling it its object of concern. And so what it, what it does is says, look, if you are a company um, based in New York City and that is using AI in those ways, then there's certain things that you, you have to do uh, in order to stay on the right side of this law. Uh, you have to be open about the fact that you're doing this. Um, you have to also uh, take your system through, uh, through a kind of verification process to make sure that it's not going to be uh, turned one way or another by, um, uh, by biases, right? That will kind of negatively impact um, you know, folks from, from marginalized communities or folks that are coming from populations that have been historically discriminated against in um, employment situations. It's, um, it's also saying that uh, you, know, you need to, to be transparent about what you're doing, uh, not just in, in terms of engaging with, uh, with the regulator. Not even just in terms of engaging with, say, your employees, but also in a public-facing manner. So the, the websites of, of those types of companies to which this law applies as of July 1, 2023, they also need to, to list vital information about what they're doing with AI on, on those websites uh, it, in a way that's publicly accessible. And so it's, uh, it's a pretty ambitious law. Um I guess is befits you know the uh the most populous and arguably the most powerful city in the United States of America um, but it's also uh you know faced some non-trivial hurdles so uh, more than a year, probably closer to two years worth of uh, worth of effort from its birth as a notion or an idea to its uh, its eventual implementation and again, we just Let's see, today is the sixth. And so we're we're just a couple of days into its enforcement regime. And so uh, it was uh, two public comment sessions, uh, probably two pushbacks of its enforcement date as well. Um, You know, many, many stakeholders had many concerns about this, about this law. Inside of the Institute, we've done a pretty uh, pretty detailed analysis of all of the public comments around around it as well as looking at the, uh, the various iterations, the drafts of the law before the finalized version. And uh, we think we can, uh, we can use what we've learned about this to both help uh, employees and employers there in New York uh, navigate this new legal terrain. And perhaps at least as importantly, uh, we could use that, that learning uh, that our research has uh, given us to help other jurisdictions, other municipalities, states as well, um, who are certainly looking at New York in the hopes of building their own version of a law like this.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say it's a pretty tough act right? Looking at everything that you described, like you also have to have it, you said they have to have it on their website too. Cause I mean, I think at this point for the most employees that are looking for a job, you kind of know when it's an AI (laughs) that rejects you. Like I can tell (laughs) when I send an application and then the next minute it's been rejected.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's so, it's so strange. Uh, in some ways it's so strange, right? Because if you if you're submitting your application, and you're getting uh, uh, thanks but no thanks within uh, forty five seconds or so, odds are yeah. right. Odds are,
1: yeah. So you know the California Consumer Privacy Act, of course, and we have the GDPR over in Europe, and so those acts, even though they're not, um, they're specific to certain regions, they've had an effect, in my view, on many other regions, including many states. People doing business outside of California still starting to heed some of those provisions. Well, you know, whether they're strict enough or not is a different question, I think, but it is having an effect. And so the same thing with the um, Act 144. Do you expect that to have any kind of a domino effect or an influential role in other states and cities? I think it's a real possibility. You know, again, thinking about the city that we're
0: talking about. It's huge. Uh, Tens of thousands of companies there, uh, many of them, uh, some of the most powerful countries, not just in the United States, but on the planet. Uh, Many of them with thousands, in some instances, tens of thousands of employees uh, around the world. And so you you could certainly imagine a company that that simply has, say, 500 employees uh, being based there in New York. with say 50% of their employees there and the rest sprinkle outside of the city. And so the, the law effectively being applicable to, to half of their employees. Like this, this company, unless it's got some kind of death wish, uh, it's not going to have two different ways of engaging with those employees, right? That's incredibly inefficient. It's going to find a way to comply with this law, and in all likelihood, apply that to to all of its employees. Uh, it, that makes sense for efficiency reasons, but it also makes sense in a in a preemptive fashion, right? Because we we know that laws like these are, are coming in other jurisdictions as well, and so you know, a, a part of the my answer I think yes to your question, if I heard it correctly. Yes, it will have an impact in other jurisdictions. Um, a part of the reason that I say yes is, is for those reasons. I think it'll just, it'll just be more, initially, it will be a more rational and probably more efficient and cost-effective approach to uh, like generating internal policy that comports with a new law like this. The, the really interesting following question for me is, okay, great. Uh, So New York is now first out of the gate uh, city-wise with a a law with teeth, right? their financial penalties for for companies that don't uh, comply. Uh, So what happens when Chicago has its law and LA has its law and Dallas has its law? Similar space, worst case scenario, similar space, similar concern, but with different requirements. And now if you are a multinational or just a national company with 10,000 employees sprinkled across, you know, 25 different American cities then it starts to get really interesting and super complex and probably quite split, uh, quite expensive to comply as well
2: yeah, um, I do wonder know, because like you said, you're you're talking about compl- uh, how enterprises and businesses are going to comply. So how can they be prepared, right? Because my thing is, is it just like obviously, if you're based in New York, you have to answer, you have to follow this. But what if you you have employees in New York or you you have a New York office, but you're really based elsewhere? Like how does that work? And like for also smaller enterprises as well.
0: I guess the the best way to start to answer is to say that. A virtue of this law, as far as I'm concerned, is that the, <clears throat> the commissioners there in New York City have designed it uh, with the hopes of protecting their the citizenry. right? So uh, at, at base, it's about you know, how do we protect the people that have elected us to protect them, right? And so given that, it's uh, kind of a, an easy... Uh, answer Right. So regardless of where the company is based, uh, if they are employing New York citizens, folks who reside in one of the five boroughs, then they, they ought to be uh, considered as uh, being governed by this law. Right. They, they ought to that kind of company ought to be uh, within the bounds of this law. Some people uh, feel that you know smaller companies ought to have a bit more wiggle room. Uh, you know they make equity arguments saying that uh, a multinational corporation obviously has deeper pockets, more resources, and can comply more effectively than, say, like a mom and pop can. And so uh, those arguments are out there. But ultimately, if the employee resides and/or lives in New York City, then they are going to be affected uh, in all likelihood, high probability, they're going to be um, you know, the objects of concern for a law like this. And so say a 25 year old is living in Brooklyn and working for a company that's got a headquarters in Minnesota, uh, you know, maybe it only has like 10 employees in New York City. It's probably still going to have to comply with this law.
1: Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. I that reminds me of how the GDPR affects most American companies, if they do any business at all in Europe, they have to comply with most of the provisions of the GDPR. So I can see that how that might have an accelerator effect here to the, the New York law. But pivoting now to generative AI and chat you know, the uh, the trendy buzzwords of the moment. And that's a gross understatement, by the way. <laughs> it's like taking up all of our time and attention. Right. How are they being discussed in the legal space right now? And also in the responsible AI. I mean, obviously, I wonder if if ChatGPT, generative AI, if responsible AI is totally focused just on that now, and forget about machine learning algorithms, and we're just talking about responsible AI as focused on uh, generative AI.
0: The conversation within uh, legal circles, both in terms of practitioners and academics, uh, when it comes to generative AI, specifically, you know, large language models, ChatGPT 3 and 4, the conversation is pretty intense uh, for, you know, a few crucial reasons. So, you know, starting with, uh, with the academy, educators and learners, right, the professors and the students are, first of all, Just trying to come to grips with you know how best to make one's way through a legal education given this new technology so you know i have uh i have a small army of research assistants now uh, most of them law students and i fold chat gpt right into uh, our work so uh you know a concrete example we are you know, and this won't surprise you at all, you know, looking very closely at the European Union's um, uh, AI law, which will uh, very likely come online, become enforceable before this year is out. And we, you know, we have a host of research questions, things we're trying to understand about this law. And we're, we're making some speculations as well about where the regulatory landscape will be, say by the time we get to the end of 2024. And right now, I think of ChatGPT3 as, on some days, like another research assistant. So if I have a question, um, I'm looking into it. I've got the human RAs looking into it. We will get together and sometimes we'll just pull uh, GPT right in and say, here's the question. Uh, This is what we're thinking. Does this make sense? Is there another way? let we miss something, right? So using it in that kind That's of cool. way, it's it's uh, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting stuff. The the students now leaving the RAs aside for a second, the students uh, have been using uh, generative AI as uh, you know a study. So mm. you know one of the things that you need to do on a traditional law school as a student is. You know, sit, sit down with an exam that lays out hypotheticals for you that describe, a, you know, a scenario, maybe multiple scenarios where something's happening. And then it asks you, essentially, the um, the exam asks you to apply the law that you've been taught in that course. And so you have to explain how that law is relevant and what the outcome of the situation would be if it was You know, taken taken to court effectively. One way that you prepare for uh, those types of problems is uh, you look at old exams. Um, Sometimes, if you're really ambitious, you know, students will get together and they'll make up new questions. And so uh, now you can, as a student, go to ChatGPT, maybe take old exams, show them to Chat, explain them to Chat, and then say, "Hey, make some new problems for me to do." Do the problems, come up with your answer, and then tell Chat to uh, give you an answer, and then explain your answer to Chat. Have a conversation in that kind of way. Um, you do that uh, for a um, you know a couple of rounds, um, and then take that into to office hours with the professor, and you know you're you're pretty well armed at that point. So some students are doing that, jumping out into uh, to practice space. You know, the states are, are very, very high because so much of the work, especially for younger lawyers and for uh, smaller law firms that are not boutiques, right, that do general de- general practice work, so, many, so much of that work is focused on uh, creating specific types of documents, right, specific types of contracts, for example, reviewing those contracts as well. So reading these massive documents very closely looking for problems, looking for places to modify given, you know, what your client is wanting to achieve. Doing that kind of work takes hours, hours and hours if you if you're a human, reader, If you're chat, it takes seconds or minutes. And so, you know, at this point if that's the nature of the work that you've been doing for 15, 20 years as a legal practitioner, you you've got to You've got to come to grips. You've got to come to grips with these large language models um, and either start specializing or incorporating them into your processes and making them more efficient uh, something. You can't stand still. So those are, those are some of the, the crucial things that uh, the folks in, uh, in the legal space are trying to come to grips with now.
2: Uh, speaking of coming to grips, I think one uh, group of people that have had to come to grips is artists. Obviously, you and I have spoken in the past about that um, and how art is change- how generative AI is changing the art art world. So, how is this still like happening since I guess we've last spoken? Um, and how-, how are artists receptive or not receptive to generative AI tools such as Stability AI?
0: Fascinating, fascinating moment in uh, entertainment space right now, and in the uh, in the arts uh, broadly construed, but specifically, you know, visual arts, um, specifically uh, photography, and uh, you know, very topically, you know, music as well. And so there've been you know a whole range of controversies. Some of them have gone over into, uh, you know, official legal controversies, right? Such as there's the cases now out there in which, um, you know, photographers, uh, or better yet, more precisely, you know, organizations who- Getty uh, Images? Right, right, exactly. Who, who have licenses to use uh, and to, to sell photographers' works are uh, pushing back against generative AI platforms that have used those databases to train their AI such that now the AI can make uh, photographs or photograph-like images that have been, in some ways, kind of inspired by what they were trained on. Uh, You see uh, the analog of that in the music industry. Just recently, there's been a lot of talk in socials around, you know, new, New Drake uh, content that is uh, that was never you know penned and recorded by Drake. It's uh, you know AI generated content inspired by what Drake has done in the past. And so uh, you and I, I would be remiss as well if I didn't note that the uh, the writer's strike right now in the United States. A part of that has to do with you know professional writers uh, who historically have done work for TV scripts, movie scripts, uh, for the streams as well, Netflix and so on, are really concerned that uh, they are increasingly in jeopardy um, as AI comes onto the scene to compete against them. And that's a, that's actually a part of the negotiations right now, like what to do about the fact that AI is able to generate scripts uh, now, whereas it was only humans that could do this, say, five years ago. So, you know, as usual, well-heeled artists are, uh, are able to, uh, to pause and kind of take a breath and think about how to move strategically here. It's noteworthy that, as far as I can tell, you know, Drake has not initiated a lawsuit uh, to kind of claw back any kind of money that's been made, if any has at all, uh, from, um, from that AI content inspired by his work. But you know, more work artists, I think, are uh, rightly disturbed right now uh, on the one hand, teams that no small number of them have already had their work uh, sampled, uh, studied, turned into training material for AI that is now competing against them. And then uh, going forward, uh, you know that, that competition, in all likelihood, will only get better, will only come more quickly. And so again, if, you, if you've been comfortably making photographs, or making, um, say, uh, say digital art, or making music for the last ten or fifteen years. This is a uh, this is a new kind of terrain right now, and the um, the artists are having to uh, to really uh, rethink their, their business models.
2: Um, what artist was there that um, that had that was I guess acting. I guess I forgot her name, but she was asking um, people to make a song out of her songs using AI. I thought that was very fascinating and if not good publicity, very, definitely very interested.
0: I can't remember which artist that was, but I remember the invitation because it was yeah. me as well. Um, you know, that's, it's a bold invitation uh, in, in my opinion. And it's, uh, it kind of points to another another part of the the intellectual property side of this debate, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is underattended to now. So we, we spend a lot of time talking about copyright law and copyright uh, protections, which are which are serious and uh, and important and, and vital to uh, to all the artists that in the United States that are you know making their art to make a living, but there's also, and that's that's federal law as well, right? So U.S. Uh, federal law, and, and copyright uh, resides at that level. But there's also state law. Most of the states in the U.S. have, uh, you know, a type of law called uh, publicity rights. And what this uh, this category of law of law does is it allows uh, individuals to uh, control the commercial use of their likeness. So uh, images of their face, uh, the sounds of their voice, depending on what they do, likeness could also include, say some unique feature of their body that we're all familiar with. I mean, some some people are extremely famous uh, just for like uh, their side profile or for their dimensions, right? Like if you saw like Jordan, for example, uh, all you need to do is see an outline of George. Mm-hmm. You know who we're talking about, and so many states allow individuals to control uh, the commercial use of those uh, elements of their persona. And so, uh, if an AI generated uh, a new song inspired by, uh, say, some some person who lived in. In the Commonwealth here, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, there, there might be a way to use state law to uh, to claw back revenues generated by the sale of that that music or that art, based on something uh, quite different from copyright. Law. And so, again, kind of like we were saying a little earlier, the the regulatory space is uh, it's like it's already complicated. It's likely to become um, almost like a jungle, um, mm-hmm. all of these cross-cutting state, or municipal, state, national, international laws; these pre-existing intellectual property laws coming in at, at different angles, and then, like Sean has been referencing, the um, the laws coming in from
1: other national jurisdictions, right? So international law as well. Okay, so as we start to wrap up, uh, I have one quick question then Esther probably has one more. And how are vendors? Providers of AI technology are going to deal with, you know, and generative AI tools. uh, How are they going to pay attention to data privacy and legally and morally and ethically going forward? Well,
0: in the Institute, one thing that we're seeing uh, dealing with clients is that increasingly their response to uh, this question of how best to to kind of tailor privacy policy internally. uh, A part of it is now a function of expectations of, of their clients um, so, or their customers, rather. And so, you know, they're, they're hearing from, uh, from customers who are expressing various types of concern. Like they, they want to know how their, their data is being, they want to know what we call the, the fate of their data. Um, how is it, what's the intake look like? How are you storing it? How are you commercializing it? How are you protecting it? right, against malicious actors? Uh, how are you training the people internally so that they understand all of your policies? How long will you keep it? And then when you're done keeping it, how will you dispose of it? I mean, that, that entire arc, the fate of, of data, increasingly customers are, are curious, uh, similar types of questions in B2B situations too. And so when you've got, uh, you know, a big corporation or even a medium-sized one that's working with a third-party vendor, those types of questions, uh, it's actually absolutely paramount to to ask about it because a data breach uh, that can end some companies at this point. Uh, a data breach could also, even if you know we're not talking about uh, shareholder value falling off of a cliff, that could imperil the ability of a company to get insurance at a decent rate now too because of course the insurers and the reinsurers are thinking about this. And so it's uh, it's pretty paramount uh in addition though to the uh the customers concerns and anxieties there are the uh the regulators as well who are at the state level I'd say there's there's greatest uh, activity now that machinations, movements at the, the national level domestically, but the state players, I think, are um, quicker off the mark right here. And they're trying to, to get a sense of how, how best to, again, protect their residents, right? Like what, what do we need to, to set as a minimum standard, a, minimal, a minimum standard that's acceptable to, to all the stakeholders for our state? And so, um, those uh, those types of companies that we're talking about right now, they also need to be monitoring what's happening at the at the state level, um, you know, getting some some sense of where things may be in a year or so. Uh, for some people, that seems like a long time out. If you've got to change internal policy though to comport with a brand new law, it may as well be yesterday. So they really do need to be paying attention in those ways too.
2: We've we'll come to the end right now, Michael. And so I have kind of like an idealistic question for you. Obviously, you're working in the space of responsible AI. You're speaking to regulators. You're speaking to those who are really affected by it. And then you also we're also seeing these new tools come out. What would you say, is it ever possible to actually have responsible AI? <laughs> I'm
0: eternally hopeful uh, across the board. Right, uh, not just in the, the AI domain. So, I, I certainly see it as a challenge. Um, and if we're talking about universally arriving at, uh, at responsible AI, an incredible challenge because, you know, uh, there's a lively debate. Well, we've got a sense of what we mean inside of the Institute, but there's a lively debate out there around what responsible AI ought to mean. And so, I'm I'm super hopeful. I think that. Uh, the great value for for all of us and for society at large is uh, pursuing the the discussion as much as we uh, pursue the the actual goal itself, and because the the reasons behind the need for responsible AI they apply to to so many uh, other domains of our lives, right? Um, I mean, really, when it boils down, when we boil it down, it just is a discussion about you know how to how to be decent. Uh, with people, especially with uh, the folks who are, are less powerful in society and less able to kind of uh, go go with the blow, if um, if you take my meaning, and so that that conversation is valuable across the board. So uh, whether we will arrive at a uniformly embraced definition of responsible artificial intelligence and an implementation implementation of AI that lines up with that. Um, I don't know um that that seems like a tall order but can we make things much better for everyone on all sides of the um the ai debate uh i think so if we take this challenge seriously
2: that's awesome yeah that's a very great answer (laughs) very diplomatic but thank you so much michael for joining us on today's podcast we hope to see you again. Um, for our listeners, you can connect more with Michael on LinkedIn. Michael is also a Tech Target contributor, so be sure to check out some of his articles, as well as mine and Sean's work on Tech Target. Bye, everyone. See you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the Tech Target news website.